So anyone that was just read along, it's Matthew chapter 4, and thank you so much to Larice, who is bringing our Bible reading for us this morning. Good morning. I'm reading Matthew 4. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, And serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Jesus begins to preach. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus calls his first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Thank you, Larissa. So this morning we're looking into the events of Matthew chapter 4. And these different events as Jesus begins to become the main character now. And we see... His ministry beginning, and it begins with this temptation. 
and unfolds from there. As I began to write this sermon this morning, there was lots that were running through my mind and through my heart, and I was exploring, and I was pondering, and I was praying, and I was reading. But there's one key question that became clear in my heart and in my mind, and one key question, actually, that God pressed upon me as things were running through my mind and the things I was wrestling with. And this was the question God asked me, and it's a question I'm going to share with you because I think it's one of the key questions that are in this passage, but it's never actually asked. But it's there nonetheless. And that is, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Who is God to me? This is a question I've been wrestling with. Is he a genie? And the gospel is about making our lives easy. That God is going to bless us. And when we think of blessing, we think we're going to be happy and at ease and comfortable. And everything will just go as we expect it to. And then when it doesn't, we're shocked, angry, and even resentful when that's the case. Or is God to us something precious? The object of our hearts one that's so mighty, so valuable, so amazing that our minds and our hearts are filled with him. And as I go through this morning's sermon, I hope you will see why I've began with that question because I come back to that question. And it's a question that God has challenged me with as I consider what's in my life and ask questions. Some of them are filled with things like self-pity. And God has just asked me this question. And as we look at the background, which we're going to look at in a second, well, there's a spoiler. The first one, the temptation of Jesus. But I'm sure you would have saw that coming anyway if you were listening to the reading. So I want to look first at the background, look a little bit about what's going on in these verses and then look a little bit about what it says to us and what I think God is wanting to say to us this morning based on what we see in these verses. So the first thing we see is the temptation of Jesus and there are many different things if you pick up commentaries that they will pick up on in these verses because the truth is there are multitudes of different things going on here. We see the introduction of the tempter, of the enemy and some of the offers that he makes Jesus. We, of course, see Jesus really begin in his ministry. We see the fact that he ends up, the first thing that happens to him is he ends up in this wilderness experience where he's, te- where he's tempted, where he's tested. We see the power of scripture because it's scripture that Jesus uses to answer the enemy. That's what he quotes back. We see the different temptations, the different little areas where the enemy is looking for vulnerability in Jesus, where he thinks that he can exploit and cause Jesus to succumb. We see the rule of the devil. Look at some of the offers that he makes him. He offers Jesus the world. Jesus doesn't say the world isn't yours to offer. It's not what he says. He responds with you worship God alone. Clearly the devil has a role in this world where he can make this kind of offer. We dismiss the enemy at our peril. But I don't want to talk about the enemy when I talk about the temptation of Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus and what he has experienced in these verses. Because his response is remarkable. And it does say a lot 
that I think that we ourselves can take hold of, can learn from, and also recognize some of the devil's schemes when we ourselves find ourselves in periods of temptation, periods of suffering, periods of difficult, periods of difficulty. But first, before we look at the trials, there's one key thing that we have to note. And that is in verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is an important thing that we have to note. Because all that unfolds from this is built on what Jesus understands here. And that is that him in this situation and circumstance was the Spirit leading him to this point. He didn't just wander out into the desert. He was led out there by the Spirit. Now, this isn't some grand sweeping statement saying all suffering is from God. That's not what we're being told here. We're being told here that Jesus, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That what he's experiencing at this point is something that God has sent him into. And he gets these free tests. Free tests at the end of 40 days of hunger and starvation. Now I wonder, has anyone here ever went without food or water for 40 days? No. Because from a natural point of view, it's not possible. Now you can go without food for a fair wee while. I've managed about five hours before. (laughs) You can go without water for, I think they generally say about three days maximum. And then you're getting into real difficulty. Now I'm desperately looking about. Is Peter out? I think he is. So that's fine. I can say what I want medically. Or we've got some nurses, so I'll need to, I still need to watch. But water is a challenge. Now Jesus, supernaturally sustained by God, has been out there for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and, and that is not... I promised you a new spinny thing this week. That is not... That is intentional as well. Because here we're told as well, and this is... Moses' experience, he was out there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses' experience when he brought down those tablets, regardless of what the people were getting up to at the bottom of the mountain, was 40 days and 40 nights. And then he was given the law. Jesus and his wilderness experience was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he produces a sermon on the mount. So there are, there are little pointers there about what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was experiencing, and this link to Moses and what Jesus was likely to do next. But let's be under no illusions here. Jesus was experiencing a trial. The fact that he was without bread and without water whilst he was sustained, because, well, he was still alive, so clearly he was sustained, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was finding this a trial, or it wouldn't be called a trial. The devil wouldn't tempt him if Jesus found this a stroll. This was a trial. It was a test. And Jesus would have found this hard. And it tells us in verse 11 that when the devil did eventually leave, it was, angels were ministering to him. They were helping him. They were renewing him because of the experience that he'd suffered. We cannot dehumanize Jesus to such an extent that we think this was a breeze because otherwise we don't recognize just what the devil was trying to do in these verses. Because the first thing he was trying to do was 
Oh, wait. Oh, wow. Okay. Back. There we go. But he was testing Jesus' endurance, his willingness to go through with what God had led him into in the situation that he now finds himself in. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the devil comes to him. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that doesn't seem all that unlogical. If somebody comes up to you in in a situation where you have been, you have gone without any food for 40 days and you have the capacity to turn stones into bread and points that out, would you find that a bizarre request? No, you would probably think, why didn't I think of that? Good point. Stones become bread. Problem solved. It doesn't seem an irrational point to make. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Just turn these stones into bread and the problem is solved. Easy. So what are you putting yourself through this for? To us, that shouldn't seem irrational. But Jesus picks up on this little thing that is happening here. And that is, and I've already pointed this out, that he was led by the Spirit into this situation. So Jesus puts himself at the mercy of God, relies and leans on God and takes this perspective that he is going to wait upon God and that God will lead him out of this as God has led him into it. So Jesus stands firm and doesn't turn the stones into bread and continues in the situation waiting for God. Because that's what he believes is going to happen in this situation. The second thing is that the devil tries to test the relationship that Jesus has. He tries to test it. I'm going way too far back. Because he, he says, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So if you're the Messiah, if you're the Messiah, then... Why not just make sure of it? Jesus is in the situation where he's suffering, where he's hungry, where he's been there for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the devil's kind of like, are you sure about this? Are you certain? Why not just have a little test? Try God's hand a little. Get a little bit of reassurance. And find out what's really going on. Jesus doesn't buy into it, stands firm on his trust for God and doesn't seek to test God's hand because the reality is God probably would have intervened. doesn't matter. Jesus is standing firm on the promises of Scripture, on who he knows God is and is waiting for God to do according to God's will. And the third is he tempts the core mission that Jesus is on. He gives them a shortcut. You're going to get all you want, all that you're sent here for, if you worship me. A shortcut. Do the ends justify the means? No. Jesus doesn't buy into this either. He knows that God alone is to be worshipped. God alone must be the object of humanity's hearts. And he rejects the devil completely at that point. 
And here's one of the ironies that we learn as we see Jesus teaching. And it begins in this chapter and goes through the whole of Matthew. That one of the amazing and remarkable things that Jesus achieves for God and what he calls humanity to be for God is a place where God's sovereign reign is restored once more. It's restored once more in the human heart. The devil here is trying to undermine that. In fact, trying to destroy that. But it doesn't work because Jesus is ensuring that God is first. And it's only after all of that that the angels come and Jesus is restored. They minister to him. And it's after these events, these testings, these testings where the devil tries to poke in to see where Jesus might be vulnerable, where he tests what Jesus believes his mission to be, how secure Jesus is in his relationship with God and how willing he is to follow through for God, that Jesus' ministry begins. This is the point where that ministry begins. Jesus begins, firstly, he assesses the situation. He, re- he recognizes that things have happened in, in the area where he was with John, where he was baptized. So he withdraws into Galilee and into Capernaum. And it's there that Jesus kind of sets up shop and becomes the hub of his ministry, as Matthew portrays it. He begins... We're told that this is the light that's breaking. The people that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then, after that statement, we hear those words, echoes of of the same message of John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the moment that the public ministry of Jesus begins. We, we now enter into a huge chapter, a huge chunk of the scripture from Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 to Matthew 16, verse 20. It's the public ministry of Jesus. His life, his teaching, his response, his ways. And it begins with that call, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins his mission. And the disciples are called. It turned, the, the disciples would have known who Jesus was. And we know this from, uh, for, from John in chapter 1. So if I can bring up John chapter 1. There we go. These, ver- these verses here, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's John the Baptist. The two disciples heard him saying this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and says to them, What are you seeking? They says to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He says to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and says to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this was their encounter of Jesus. But at this point, there was no call. There was just an encounter. 
And they seem to think, oh, we found the Messiah, but we know as we look, as we know the disciples, they flip-flop on that. Sometimes they think, ah, he's the Messiah. Other times they're not sure. Sometimes they're fighting about the role they're going to get. Other times they're just not getting it at all. But here in Matthew, we come to the point where Jesus encounters them again and says that simple command, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And they drop everything. And they do that. What they'd seen in Jesus was one who was worth the sacrifice of dropping everything. Heading into the unknown. And following them. No matter the risk. No matter the cost. No matter the uncertainty. They recognized something in Jesus that it was worth that step of faith, that it was worth that risk. And we see the kingdom moving in power very quickly. What they're anticipating begins to happen as Jesus is healing, as Jesus is restoring, as Jesus is casting out demons. And this is important to see. Jesus begins to challenge the things of the world that shouldn't be. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. And what this shows us is the kingdom isn't merely some happy, clappy place where heaven meets earth. Sorry, some happy, clappy place. It's where heaven meets earth. And the power of God begins to restore things back to God's intention through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a remarkable place. It's a transforming place. And it can be a scary place. But it's a wonderful place as well. So free quick applications. The first of these is enduring, for this is what Jesus does. The reality is, trials aren't fun. If they were, they wouldn't be trials, or there's something slightly wrong with us psychologically, one of the two. They can be overwhelming. They, they feel alien. And not all suffering comes from God. Let's be very clear about that. Some comes because we live in a fallen world. But Jesus gives us an example of how to respond to it. And it also he shows us from this narrative how the devil is going to try and cause us to fall, to struggle, to take our eyes off God. He shows us in a sense the vulnerabilities that we may have ourselves. So an important question then is why does the devil fail? Because once again, I'm pushing into we can't just dehumanize Jesus so much that he's some divine angel wandering around. He was fully human and fully God. He was experiencing a trial. Why does the devil fail? Yes, we could say it's just because it was Jesus. But there's more than that as well. I think one of the key reasons the devil fails, and what we can learn from this, is there is no platform that the devil can stand on when the heart is focused on God. There is no platform the devil can stand on when the human heart is focused on God. And that is what is experienced in, in these verses. Jesus' heart focused on God. And regardless of the situation that he finds himself in, everything is defined by this. And Jesus, knowing who his Father is, waits upon him. That is his heart's longing. 
the issues, the struggles, the fears, all this stuff is redefined. Color is added to them because God is in his heart. I asked us that question right at the start. Who is a God to us? And said that this was an important question. And now I say again how important this question is. Because the answer to that question defines how many platforms the enemy, enemy has to stand upon as he, as he tests us in our lives. As he explores and looks for the vulnerabilities that we have. Who is God to us? Does he have our zeal and our passion in our hearts? Or are there things to focus? And those things could be potential platforms for the enemy. And there is costly obedience as well. Jesus' willingness to be obedient regardless of the cost. In fact, he was even willing to continue suffering in these verses. That to me is striking. Because I don't know about you guys, but when I'm experiencing a situation, it's a test and it's a challenge. One of the things I pray for is a shortcut, a way out. But Jesus here doesn't take that. All he seeks is God. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't create ways out. It doesn't mean that God doesn't create shortcuts almost for us to get out of situations. Because he can and he does do that. But what matters and what I'm trying to get across here isn't actually that. But that our hearts are focused on God. That is the key thing. And as we do that, we look for what his will is. And that's hard. But you know what's good? It's good that we have the same spirit that Jesus had. That's good. That we share in that same Holy Spirit. That God's power lives within us too. And that even through we find ourselves in trials at times. Even through, I am certain there are times we do take the wrong options and the devil does pull that Jenga block that causes things to fall. We know from knowing our God, that he calls us back to him. Calls us to that place where we turn to him, where we ask his forgiveness, where it's given, and he gives us that call again. Those wonder, and they become wonderful words at that point. Follow me. And we continue the journey with our God once more. And there is following you know, it's interesting, following that is now a word that's trendy again. I don't know if trendy is a word that's acceptable to use these days. Is trendy back in fashion or is it still out? I'm getting a, I'm getting a, and a thumbs up, so I'm going to stick with it. It is trendy to follow. And I don't mean in that like stalking, hiding in the bushes kind of sense. Let's just clarify that. that that's not trendy. Don't do it. Okay? Just don't. But you'll see it like on Facebook or on Twitter. Follow means that you're interested in somebody. Their thoughts, well, they're worth something to you. You, you. you want to know what they're thinking. You want to know what they've been up to, what events have been at, that they're going to post pictures. Or bizarrely, people seem interested in what people are eating these, these days as well. But we follow people. But is that all it means? 
Because here's the risk, folks, that when Jesus says, follow me, we think it's a, bit, it's a bit something like Twitter. We're going to add you to the list. Your thoughts will drop in. And yeah, I'll have a read and think, oh, that's nice. And then everything else drowns it out. It's not the kind of following that Jesus is calling people to. And it's not the kind of following that he is calling the disciples to either. What Jesus gives is a life-changing call. A call to follow from rabbi to disciple, which means one you live with, you walk with, you share life with, you learn from, you imitate. That's what these things mean. But Jesus doesn't just merely introduce himself to us as our rabbi. No, when we had that revelation of Jesus, when we became Christians, there's probably two other words that he introduced himself to us as. Two other words which changed our lives, which changed our priorities, which changed everything. And they would have been Lord and Savior. That's what he introduced himself to us as. We learned the rabbi a bit later, but he introduces himself as Lord and Savior. So it isn't merely just about those things that I just said. It's about one that we give our lives to, that we trust completely, that we're obedient to even when it's not that pleasant, that we follow regardless of potential hazards and dangers, that because we know he is the son of God, we follow faithfully regardless of what happens, that we are obedient and giving our all for God. And that is a costly path. It's gone one too far. I wanted to reference this, yeah, see, keep a safe following distance. That's not what Jesus asks of us. He asks that we walk side by side with him. And let me tell you this, it's not a safe following distance. It's a life-transforming following difference. It's a priority-changing following distance. It's a reorientation of our whole lives around God following distance. And that's what Jesus asks of us. And yes, it is transforming. That's a transformer, by the way. It's the best I was getting when I typed transforming into Google. So if you didn't know what it is, now you do. And that transformative thing, and this is what I bring it back to before we share in communion together, is God reigning in the human heart. That is what Jesus is coming to establish in the most remarkable way. That that fire and passion and zeal for God is there once more because people are reorientating their lives around God. That's what Jesus is seeking to do. A people being transformed back into his image back into that image humanity once had, the image of God, uh, being restored increasingly in us once more. As Jesus does remarkable things, his kingdom must reign in human hearts. It must. And that's what God seeks. And that's why I asked that question, who is God to you? For if the answer to that question is one where it's like the following on Twitter. He isn't reigning in our hearts the way he must. He isn't reigning in our hearts in the way in which we're going to see the kingdom impact us and the world around us in remarkable ways. 
For as God establishes his reign in our hearts, his intent is then to use us. To use us to proclaim that gospel where, is, where his reign is established in other people's hearts. And this remarkable experience happens to them, but also in the world itself. Jesus goes out and he begins to minister to great crowds. He is light driving back the darkness. He is salt. He is light. And as he reigns in our hearts, we become those things as well. His desire is to use us to be a blessing to others, to be an ambassador for him, to show the world the gospel in word and in deed. So I ask that question to us just to close. Who is God to you? And can I ask the stewards who are going to lead communion with me to come forward? Who is God to you? As we share in communion together, communion, union with God being brought back, let's make this a time where we say, Lord, reign in me. Let's make it that time for us. That God is reigning in our hearts. He is Lord.